Relationships of marriage, real. I like to keep it real. It's important that we keep it real uh, about our marriage relationships. And if you're single here, listen, because if you toss this away and you discard this and you're dismissive of this, you're also dismissive of the idea that one day you may not be so single. You're single today. You know where you are today. You know what you want today, but you don't know what you'll want five years from now, two years from now, six months from now. You don't know what your status will look like. So listen, learn, because the principles that we're going to learn about are good for every single relationship, okay? Young people, 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds, you're getting into dating. Learn these things. Understand these things. We're going back to basics. Back to basics. Why did God make marriage in the first place? Is it just so that two people can have sex? I told you I'm coming to be real. So, so get past some things. I'm going to be in your face being real. Why did God make marriage? I mean, why? Why? What's the existence? Well, if we find out why God made it, we can find out what goes wrong with it when it goes wrong. Because whenever something doesn't operate by its original purpose, it is broken. Keep in mind that anything that does not operate by the designer's purpose is broken. It's either broken or improperly used, okay? How many of you have treadmills at your homes that you're using as clothes closets? Because the stuff you hang on there belong in the closet. Well, it's being misused, right? You will never get the full impact of something, of anything, if you don't use it based upon the designer's purpose. So what's the purpose of marriage? Why? Why? Why did God design it? The basic needs that marriage answers, number one, is loneliness. Loneliness. Can you say loneliness? Loneliness is slightly different from being alone. Loneliness is a lingering internal thing. Being alone is a geographical disposition. You can be around people all the time and be lonely. Loneliness. When God created man, the first thing he says in Genesis 2.18 concerning what uh, man's state is he says it is not good that the man should be alone. God recognized the need that Adam didn't even recognize himself. He said it's not good. Loneliness. Why? Because we were created for relationships. So how did God remedy it? Companionship and friendship. And if loneliness is what marriage is supposed to dispel, when marriage does not dispel loneliness, marriage isn't working properly. No? When soap no longer cleans, whatever it's put to, then soap is not, we understand it with everything else. Whenever something operates in a, or does not effectively operate in its purpose, it does not work. So God used this thing called marriage to dispel loneliness and to bring about 
togetherness, right? The two shall be made one. Fellowship and commonality. Let me tell you something about loneliness and commonality. Uh, loneliness comes, can come in two ways. Here are two ways. Number one, there is the geographical loneliness. When you're on an island by yourself where you're literally by yourself, okay? Literally by yourself. Uh, I'm talking about no other bodies around you. You can be lonely by virtue of no other bodies around you. Or you can be lonely by virtue of no common bodies around you. You can be a room in a room full of people and have nothing in common with anybody and it will generate a feeling of loneliness. No commonality will lead to loneliness. Here's something for those of you thinking about marriage. Don't get married first and get something in common later. You don't get married first and then have something in common later. There needs to be commonality because wherever there is commonality, there is a foundation for communication. When there is no commonality, communication becomes moot and mute. When you don't have something in common with somebody that you're standing in line at Walmart with, guess what you don't have? You don't have anything to talk about. Y'all are right in here? All right, all right, all right, let's move. Loneliness within the relationship that was created to dispel it, which is marriage, turns marriage from a bond to a bondage. I want you to hear this. So God says, I'm going to give you one relationship where you can be this close. One relationship where you can be this close. One you got one relationship. Now, other relationships, you could be close, but I'm only allowing one relationship for you to be this close, for you, to, for you to be this close and not be lonely. And once you're in that relationship, that's the relationship that you need to be in for life. So you get into the relationship, the only relationship where you can be that close, and you're still lonely. Now you're trapped in a relationship that doesn't meet the need of eradicating loneliness. That's when the marriage goes from bond to bondage. Are y'all hearing me today? Say amen if you understand what I'm saying. And because of that, research suggests, one source, Psychology Today, which does statistical uh, uh, analysis, research suggests that those who suffer from loneliness, there are 62.5 of people who suffer from loneliness are actually married. Yeah, y'all not hearing me today. That means that there are more married lonely people Statistically, then there are single lonely people. Don't put down your singleness if you're single. The Bible doesn't put it down. Society 
highlights or magnifies or says if you're married, you're better off and things and you can deal with statistics. At the end of the day, it's all about your situation. People say people who are married live longer. It depends on what kind of marriage it is. Hello? There are people who are married and they're going out of here because of the stress and strains, because of the quality of the marriage. So here's the thing. God designed marriage to get rid of loneliness. So when marriage is the relationship that he designed to get rid of loneliness, does not provide companionship, then that marriage becomes a prison and your spouse becomes the correction officer. Oh, Jesus. Jesus be a fence. I want you to go to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Say amen if this is helping anybody. So what does the devil attack, attack first? What does the enemy attack first? The enemy attacks the thing that marriage is supposed to get rid of. And marriage is supposed to get rid of loneliness. Right? If water does not satisfy thirst, if water stops being wet and satisfying, I don't care if you have a bottle of it, you'll throw it away because it serves no purpose. How many of you have ever thrown anything away that serves no purpose? How many of you had an ink pen and it looked full, but it wouldn't write? It's easy to throw those away. And if it's a fancy one, you gut it out, put something else in there. Are you hearing me? Now we understand why people throw marriages away. Because I'm just as lonely. Some people say, I'm just as lonely married to you as I was when I was single. So the enemy begins to break down the thing that brought about the union, that brought about the companionship, the thing that dispelled loneliness, and that's friendship. You know how many married couples are not friends? I know it's good, Andre. I don't know what's wrong with everybody else, but I know it's good. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We have readers, to, we have readers today? Where did our readers go? We'll wait. Then I looked again uh -huh. at vanity under the sun. Uh -huh. There was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was none in to, to all his labor. Look at this. There was a certain man that was lonely. Watch this. And this is the idea of loneliness. I need you to get marriage out of the, out of the picture because it's not, the principles applies to every, apply to everybody, okay? Uh, and we're going to talk a bit about people who, who, who uh, choose to be alone and now how there are some, uh, while you think there are some benefits, there are some vices and there are some uh, negative effects of being by yourself all the time, right? Um, in verse 8, read verse 8 again. There was a certain man without a dependent, mm -hmm. having neither a son nor a brother. Uh-huh. Yet there was no end to all his labor. Okay. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, 
and he had never asked. Okay, so what we have here is a lonely man without dependence. So this, now this is talking about family, not just marriage. It's talking about family. This series is on relationships, marriage, and family. Here it is. Loneliness, we see through this first, limits meaningful and perpetual enjoyment of hard-earned resources. What does that mean? That's a fancy way of saying this, that it doesn't matter if you got money if you don't have anybody to spend it on or nobody to spend it with. It doesn't matter if you have a house, if there's nobody to fill it with you. It doesn't matter if you have a car, if there's nobody to ride with you. It doesn't matter if you have resources, if there's nobody to share it with. Part of the enjoyment of resources is that you don't have to enjoy resources by yourself. One of the things loneliness does is it limits the meaningful and perpetual enjoyment, which means your testimony only has one person in it, and that's you. Oh, I went, I went here, I went here, and I traveled here, I traveled here, I traveled here. And you start seeing that your narrative just has you in it. Nobody to laugh with you, nobody to agree with you, nobody to enjoy it with you. And when you are fastened to loneliness, it limits the meaningfulness. We leave a print while we're here. And the print will be perpetuated by those who connected to us during our existence here. Don't you know that to die lonely is like a seedless watermelon? There's no one to talk about your memory after. No one to say, I had this moment after, good, bad, or indifferent. We all have relatives. And this is marriage, out of marriage relationship. We all have relatives and people in our family that have passed on that weren't the best people. But I found myself laughing about people who weren't the best people in my family. Even if it was just reminiscent on how they cussed me out when they got drunk. <laughs> Are y'all seeing this? You end up with these memories that at the time, before they become memories, while they're experiences, they shake you and they rattle you, but in hindsight, it's something to chuckle at, it's something to laugh about, it's a memory to hold and to cherish, and it keeps them in your memory even though their body is moved on. Loneliness limits your memories. I went to Six Flags, you went by yourself, oh, okay. But it's something to see someone else enjoying it. I've traveled places. I've traveled places and I've gone and saw movies that I've seen before. And the reason why I saw them again not, was not because they were necessarily that good. But the first time I saw the movie, I was by myself. The second time, I was, with, I was with family. I was with Carol. I was with the girls. I was with friends. I was with... So, watch this. Part of the enjoyment of even watching a movie a second time comes from watching somebody else enjoy what you enjoy. Read verse number uh, 9. Verse number 9. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their work. This is the Bible. This is the Bible, the wisdom text. Two are better than one. Why? 
Now, this is not saying, watch this, this is not saying married people are better than single. It didn't say married. It's dealing with loneliness. And we have to stop making, trying to make one better than the other. Because it's an individual case. Amen? Why y'all looking? Why y'all, what's wrong? What's wrong? Say amen if you agree with this. Is this too, too much? Too deep? We digging too deep? Yeah, it is an individual case. And when you try to live by other people's cookie cutter, you're getting in trouble. Two are better than one. Companionship creates greater dividends and outcomes from efforts. Even in a rowboat, it works better when one person is rowing and another person is rowing with an oar. You go faster. You reap greater benefits. It's better when two incomes come together. Am I talking to real folk in here? Amen. What if somebody, it's better when two people are sharing the bills. Come on in this house. Two are better than one. You reap a bigger dividend. And I'm going to tell you something, couples. Don't just be married folk. Be business partners. That's your business partner. Sit down, come together. How are we going to do this? Okay, let's put the money together, this and that and the other. And before it's all said and done, you have a greater outcome than you would doing it alone. Not only is it physical resources, but it's mental resources because no one person knows it all. Two are better than one. Read. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their work. Now read verse number 10, and we're going to finish this text. Read. And if one has a fall, the other will give him a hand. But unhappy is the man who is by himself because he has no helper. So watch this. Companionship, you get help. If you keep reading down to verse 12, you get heat. Read. Verse 12. So again, if two are sleeping together, they are warm. But how may one be worn by himself? Y'all see that? Did y'all know that was in the Bible? <laughs> you got help, you got heat, and you got healthiness. This is companionship. Now, when we talk about sleeping together, that's just, let me, let, let me qualify that. Amen. Of course, the ecclesiastical writer still wasn't talking about marriage. He was talking about in a tent, not, not, not sexual. It was not a sexual overtone, okay? It wasn't. This is a sexualized society. It is. But, but even in marriage, there's warmth. God so designed it physiologically that our bodies put out heat. If it was a snowstorm and it was cold, Amen? And your air conditioner or your heater in your car went out, don't you know you'd be warmer with some other bodies sitting in the car with you? It's physiologically true. So companionship. All of this, God confined and stuffed into the relationship of a marriage. You walk into a marriage expecting this. You say, I do expecting this no one gets married to be lonely who in the world gets married 
to be lonely. Who goes through all of that riffraff, standing before the altar, playing the music, flowers and ring boys and all of that and flowers. And here comes the bride, here comes the bride, here comes the bride. Just to have this elaborate wedding and a lonely marriage. That's not how God designed it. And we're going to talk about how it gets that way. And how the Bible even on the other side explains why loneliness becomes the better option, even in marriage. The Bible expresses that loneliness can get, your marriage can get to the point where loneliness is the better option. There's a scripture that talks about it is better to dwell in the top of a roof than in a wide house with a brawling woman. That means your marriage can get to the point where loneliness is the better option. Where what it was designed to eradicate is what it takes for it to survive. Y'all not ready? Y'all ready? So this is what we do. This is what you do. Uh, and this is, this, you know, when we're doing counseling on any level marriage, the first thing, the inclination we have is to blame others. It's natural. That's marriage, out of marriage, whatever. The first inclination is to point away from yourself. But here's a healthy thing to do. Assess yourself before you assess your marriage. Before you call it a bad marriage, do a self-examination. Who were you when you got married and who are you now? Nobody stays the same. So I'm not talking about being the same person you were when you got married. Your marriage will fail if you're the same person you were 30 years ago. There will be an imbalance. Because when, some when one person progresses and grows and evolves and the other person doesn't, what you end up with is an adult married to a kid. No? If you're married at 20 and he stopped evolving and you kept evolving, you're now 50 married to a 20-year-old or vice versa. However, it begins with looking at yourself and assessing your own development. And here's the examination, the self-examination. What about your temperament? Can I come out there? Y'all want me to stop? Okay, well watch this. What about your temperament? I'm coming out there. How do I react to things? Okay, some of the coolest, calmest people in church are the most ravenous bulls in a marriage. Oh, there's sweet sister McGillicuddy and brother McGillicuddy. Look at how they walk in together. She helps him along. He's on his cane. Goals. 
And you don't even know that he got that cane because she kicked him in the leg. Goals. Y'all all right in here? What about, what about your habits? Are they constructive habits? You can have personal habits that mess up your marital relationship or any relationship. Are your habits constructive or do your habits cause havoc? Because if your habits cause havoc, they will not only cause havoc to you, but everyone tied to you. Vulnerability, am I transparent? Am I still hiding? Am I still hiding? Am I still afraid to show who I am? This is what you ask yourself. What about, what about your insecurities? Am I bound to fear? Insecurity will kill a marriage relationship or any relationship quicker than quick. There are some people that have unnecessary enemies because you thought somebody was talking about you. And guess what you did? Because you were so convinced and insecure about how they felt about you and thought they were talking about you, you started returning the behavior in the name of get back. Now you're getting somebody back who never did anything to you. Now the relationship, if it wasn't messed up before, is messed up now, not because anybody did anything to you, but because you were insecure and you acted on that insecurity and sabotaged the relationship because of your insecurity. There are dating people that sabotage relationships because of their insecurity. You don't think much of yourself, so every compliment he gives you, every time he calls you beautiful, every time he says, oh, I, I just love, I just love how you look. I love who you are. Every time he says that, you think he's up to something. Then you carry that insecurity with you and you sabotage any opportunity you have at being loved. And if that's what you operate on as an individual, you bring that with you into a relationship. And then wonder why he eventually or she eventually treats you in the way of your insecurity. I'm nothing, I'm nobody, I'm not beautiful, I'm not beautiful. I'm telling you, you're beautiful. What are you, you just saying that, you just saying that, you just saying that, you just saying that. After a while, people get tired of trying to affirm you over and over and over and over. How many times I got to tell you, I'm telling you, I'm showing you, I'm doing it, I'm beautiful. You, t I'm, you handsome, nah, you just saying that, no, you know, you looking across the way. That, you know what, people get tired of doing that, and eventually they believe what you believe about you. So what about your likes and dislikes? What are they? Know yourself. Faith and convictions. Where do I stand? Where do I stand? And even in your marriage, where do you, where do you stand on friendships? Where do you stand on relationships? Where do you stand on uh, friends of the opposite sex? Where do you stand uh, in your faith in God? Where do you stand in, in child rearing? Some people never check into those things and go years being married having never done a self-assessment. So they spend their whole marriage blaming their spouse. Because at no point did they step back and look at themselves. Okay, yeah. Now, let's move on. We're almost done. We're going to eat. Y'all know there's dinner, right? At Luby's or wherever restaurant you choose. 
We bring all of everything we are and are becoming to every relationship, even if we don't show it all. And I've been saying this, marriage is exposed to more of it. You bring it. You have the characteristic first, you bring it into the relationship. If you're an insecure person you, and you're standing at the altar, now you're an insecure married person. If you're vindictive, you're now an ins you're a vindictive married person. Now you see why self-assessing is so much. I don't even want to hear anybody come in my office and talk to me about what's going, what their spouse is doing. I want to know, what are you doing? All right. Do you know why? The reason why is God only gives us the power to control one person. And that person is look to somebody and tell them who it is you. you you only get to control you do you know how many people are trying to control their spouses and their friends and their everybody and we're using manipulation we're using coercion we're using uh, we're using uh, ultimatums to try to control this if you don't do this then okay then I'm not doing this all of these are control mechanisms. The enemy of faith is not doubt. The enemy of faith is control. You thought it was doubt. Because faith means to surrender control. And I know some of you can't see this, enough, and we're doing our best with what we have. Y'all pray for us. Y'all pray for us uh, as we do our best with what we have. But even better than praying for us, if somebody out there, you can afford to write a check to change this situation, harden not your heart. I want to talk about, finally, general perceptions, marital personalities, and personal experience, looking beyond the status quo. Number one, marriage or mirage, avoid living to public perceptions of your marriage. There are so many people living in how people see our marriage and not living in your reality. Y'all are cute. Don't buy the lie. Turn to somebody and say, don't buy the lie. Or, or watch this, or the other side. Y'all just, well, y'all are, y'all are rough. Don't buy the lie. You know what your marital reality is. Live in it. Don't borrow or buy anybody else's perception of your personal relationship of marriage. It ain't theirs. It's yours. You got to go home with him. You got to go home with her. You got to live with her. You got to live with him. Don't buy into their perception. We live in a world that has disillusioned and a society that's disillusioned people to think that they know people better than they do. And how, that, how did this happen? It happens through Facebook and social media. You look at a few pictures and you think you got that person down. Or you think you got that couple down. You don't know what's going on in their life. You don't know what their back page looks like. You don't know what their back office looks like. You don't know what their personal conversations sound like. And you operate thinking you know everything by looking at a few pictures. And then you move in and think you can talk to one spouse about the other. Because they don't talk. You don't know just like people don't know you. People show you what they want you 
to see. On social media, at church, everywhere. They show you what they want you to see, so don't buy into the perceptions. Marital personality cloning. All of this goals, you know, that bothers me sometimes. Goals. You're adopting the personality of other couples so that you can self-manufacture their happiness. They're pet names. See, you marry who you marry. You didn't marry... Y'all ready on this side? If you married somebody who is not big on affection, public affection, don't look over across the way and see brother and sister so-and-so all smooched up. Look at your spouse and think something's wrong with him. If he's never been that way, stop trying to clone that. Because there's more that comes with that than that. You married, watch this, your marriage develops a personality based upon the personality of the two individuals come together, coming together. It's a spiritual DNA that gets intertwined and you develop your own marital personality. Yeah, there, are couples that, there are couples that are slap each other on the backside, then that's fine. There are couples that will never, you'll never see them hug, you'll never see them kiss, but that doesn't mean they're not passionately involved outside of your eyesight. But never, ever make a mistake of trying to adopt another marital personality. The world offers tons of personalities on television. And even as young people, you say, that's what I want to be like. But what you don't see is the argument during the commercials. If it's not your personality, operate in your marital personality. Stop trying to make your spouse be like somebody else. How come you can't, uh, how come, uh, you know, you know, just so-and-so over there, you see them? How come you can't? That's the quickest way to mess up what you have. Amen. That brother said, you know what this is, and you know what this been. Why are you changing? He looked at what you're looking at, and he said, well, look, you know what? If that's what you want, go over there. <laughs> sister, if, sister said, if that's what you want, you can go over there. Go find that. That's what you want, go find that. If, if you don't like this, go find that. There's a principle that God tells Samuel when he's trying to ordain David as king. Samuel tells, God tells Samuel, man looks on the outside. 
1 Samuel chapter 15. But God looks at the heart. Grass is meant to be seen. Ants are not readily seen under the soil. Termites are not seen. Don't mess around trying to manufacture somebody else's marital personality. Because if you accomplish that, you may also adopt their marital termites. And people don't stay together because they smiled and they had a certain personality. People stay together because they deal with what they have. Say amen if you understand. Revelation chapter 3, I'm almost done. Verse 1 and 2. Real life, go there. Look at what God says. Jesus says, and I think there are two more frames and then we're going to go. We're doing good. There are two more frames and then we're going to go. Say amen if this is helping anybody. Amen. Okay. Know all the things you do and that you have a reputation for being, I know all the things you do and you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly, repent and turn to me again. If you don't wake up, I will come to you suddenly as unexpected as a thief. Revelation chapter 3, 1 through 2, Jesus says this to one of the seven churches of Asia Minor. Now I want you to take the application from the church, and now I want you to think about your marriage, your engagement, or whatever, your relationships. I know all the things you do, and that your relationship has a reputation for being alive. Your marriage has a reputation for being alive. Your friendship has a reputation for being alive. Your relationship with your mom has a reputation for being alive. People see it as alive. People admire it from afar. It has a reputation of being alive. Your marriage is the one that people look at and say goals because it's such a reputation of being alive. But Jesus says, but it's dead. It's dead. How do, I, how do I get it back? Number one, whatever is not dead, whatever's holding on, you need to strengthen. Every marriage has something that's still holding on. I don't care how bad it gets, there's something still holding on because you still are in it. There's something holding on. There's something that's not completely dead. There's something that's not completely gone. There's something that's barely going. There's something, there's something in your relationship, in your marriage that still has a pulse. There's something in your relationship, in that relationship that still has some kind of life in it, but it's weak. You have to strengthen what that is. It may be the fact, may, it may be y'all's involvement with the kids. 
If the ground that you get to talk to each other are the kids, guess what? Do more things together with the kids. Strengthen what else remains because it's going to take what remains to get back what was lost. He says, go back. He says, uh, he goes on to say, but I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Isn't that what happens? I don't love you the way I used to love you. And you know what people immediately say? Because you used to do this. You used to do that. You used to tell me how beautiful I was. You used to cook me dinner. And we blame the loss of love on something they stopped doing. And we don't begin with us. He says, he says, I have a complaint. You don't love me like you used to. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place. A call for first works to be repeated. What does that mean in a relationship, in a marriage? What did you do when you were first dating? And this is not even marriage. Some of you are dating right now. And you're getting bored with the guy you're dating, with the girl you're dating. You just... It's just, oh, no, 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 no. That's why y'all been engaged for, for 15 years already, because you, 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 know, you say, well, this is the safety zone. I'm not leaving the safety zone. Oh, no, that's my fiancé eternally. <laughs> but what did you do before? This, again, all relationships. Before you fell out with your mom, before you and your mom became enemies, before you and your father became bitter, before you and your spouse, before you and the person you're dating and you, have, you, you want to be with the rest of your life, before it got so bad, what was it that you used to do before? Go back to some of the first things. Watch this. Now, ultimately, this is talking about your relationship with God. Before you became just a church member. Before you stopped studying like you, used, like you used to, before all of this, before life began to become so cluttered and hectic that you just kind of fell and drifted away, what did you do before? Whatever you did before, the admonishment is to do it again. Recognizing and identifying why you chose one another. Why did you choose this person? You could have had anybody. You could have married anybody. You could have been with anybody, but you chose this person. Why? Why did you choose her? Why did you choose him? Now, if it was looks, he don't look like he used to look. He used to be a size. Now he's a size. He used to be a size Greg. Now he's a size JK. Just give it time because time is going to do something with all of our looks. I don't care how beautiful you are, time, gravity, smog, and bad eating is going to do something with the way everybody in here looks. Don't get it twisted. Don't get it twisted pursuing somebody who looks like the latest model of what you already have. Just give it time. You don't want anybody in it because of how you looked, because that's going to change. Why did you choose that person? What was it about them? 
that you appreciate it. You may find that they still have that, but there are so many other things now that you're focusing on that you don't focus on the thing you had that made you look at her and say, whew, and say what? That was mine, do your own thing. Now let me go over here, man. I said woo, you're gonna say woo. Be authentic. That made you look at Willie even and say what? You didn't even say anything. That made you look and say what? Okay. I don't want to go any further because I'm afraid that it's going to get more and more explicit. And say, girl, you blue, 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 blue. Don't wait for feelings. It didn't say do feel the same way. It said do the first works. Sometimes you have to do it till you feel it. You got to. You got to do it till you feel it. And that's in relationships. You know, there are people that get on your nerves, and, and there are people that get on your nerves, family members, whatever, friends, whatever, even in church relationships, even in whatever it is. There are people that get on your nerves, and the easy, cowardly thing to do is to back away and to disengage. That's what many of us do. We disengage. I ain't got to deal with that. Marriage is a relationship that ties you together. Ain't no backing up like you used to. God doesn't want us to be cowards in our relationship. You got to do it till you feel it. Can I share an experience and then we're done? So we're not going to be done until I share this experience. So can I share an experience? Thank you. <laughs> so this week I ate at first. That wasn't that wasn't it. That wasn't the point. Like. There's a whole story to that. You know, like, oh, okay, yeah, no. And uh, I was in line, and the, the fur's right across there. I like it. I like that restaurant. And uh, as I was in line, you know, a woman comes, and she just cuts in front of me. She looks me in the face, cuts in front of me. Uh, you need to give me some of this, that, and the other. You need to give, I need this. And... Uh, at first, you know, that kind of took me. I'm like, oh, okay. And uh, so she was still talking to the worker behind the, the hot thing and whatever. And so I went around and just kept going because she was there. Well, I got on down later in the line. She came around and got in front of me again. <laughs> See, when, 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 when somebody does something a second time, that's when you, that, that's when something clicks. I, I said, oh, no, 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 no. That's when you say, wait a minute, now hold up, wait a minute. Hold up, wait, now wait just one minute. <laughs> and if that wasn't enough, uh, you know, she looked at me like I skipped her. <laughs> now how are you going to do that? Then look at me like I did it. Yeah. That doesn't work. So, you know, I went to the seat and... Uh, uh, to my seat, and I didn't even get the vegetables I wanted to get because she was holding up the line. She ended up with meat, so I called the waitress, I need vegetables. She said, yeah, I saw that. I saw that. I said, oh, yeah, okay. So now, the woman is sitting across the way, she had her kids. And I said, now, I know how I feel. Part of me wants to get up and say, 
Ma'am. I wasn't feeling anything good. But I fought it. And I asked the waitress, the same waitress that, that I would have been justified to do that with because she saw it. I told the waitress, go over there and bring me her bill. Yes, sir. Go over there and bring me her bill. It was $13. Nothing. It was thir- I said, go get me a bill. See, before she skipped me because she didn't see me. She saw me, but she didn't see me. She couldn't see me. She was all into doing what she was trying to do and getting what she tried to get. She couldn't see me. But now she got introduced to me. When I took it, I said, just bring it to me. I walked out, tried to get out, and she came, and she said, you know, thank you. Then she met a person, and not just someone to skip. Here's my point. I'm not, I'm not bringing glory to me. Now watch this. I'm trying to give an example. Did I feel like doing it? No. But if I would have waited to the feeling, it wouldn't have happened. In your relationship, you got to move before you feel it. Because if you wait for the feeling, it's not going to happen. If you feel like putting your arms around her, it may not happen. If you feel like hugging him, it may not happen. He might have made you so angry. You might be so irate and frustrated with the relationship that if you're waiting to feel like getting together, if you're waiting to feel like going out, if you're waiting to feel like having the conversation, it may not happen. So you may have to step out on faith and do what you don't feel like doing until your feelings catch up to what you did. Is this making sense to anybody? This is going to bless somebody. Because right now you're not feeling her. You're not feeling him. Stop waiting for the feeling. Jesus said, do your first works. Don't wait to feel like sporting each other. Just do it. Just do it. In your way. Don't try to manufacture someone else. Just, you, know, you hear Greg, Greg, I like watching Greg and Candace. They're just so fun to watch. Greg has given Candace so many pet names. I'm surprised they don't have more kids than what they have. But, uh, <laughs> but if Candace is baby boo, don't manufacture it. Don't come over here. I ain't got no business. Hey, baby boo. Baby boo. Or, hey, my love, my love, when you start calling me that, that will cause trouble. They will wonder who you've been hanging around. (laughs) Calling me something you never called me before. What's wrong with you? (laughs) But do it in your way. No marital personality cloning. Declare each other in your own way. Laugh together. Don't nurse anger or rehearse any kind of unresolved issue. That's already done. You know how many people are living in last year's issues? In their relationships? There are some people right now you don't get along with because of what happened two years ago. 
It's 2019, you're still in 17. Catch up with the time. Sorry, that's gone. There's nothing you can do about it. It happened. It's done. You cannot do anything to change it. It happened. There are new issues and there are new blessings. Yesterday's success is behind you. Yesterday's failure is behind you. Otherwise, you may find yourself with a Cliff and Claire reputation and an Ike and Tina reality. I'm going to let that one sit right there. We're done. We're done for this morning. Has this helped anybody? Ultimately, all of this is about your relationship with God. Uh, we got to talk about marriage before we talk about encouraging people through divorce. On one end, we're doing preventive maintenance. On the other end, we're doing restorative maintenance. But you can't do restorative and not do preventive. Otherwise, you create this cycle that just keeps going. Uh, this, is not also, this is also not just about marriage. This is about who you are. Because whoever you are, you bring it into the relationship. Now, this is what God is calling you to be. He's calling you to be born again. It's hard for a born-again person who is moving to God and somebody who hasn't been born again to kind of keep something in common. Your life trajectory and your lifestyle are going, styles are going in two different directions. You're going to God, the other person's not. You belong to God and the other person has an association with God through you. So if you're not saved today, the first thing I want to encourage you to do is look at your need to be saved. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that God raised him from the dead? Believing that, are you willing to repent of your sins? Jesus says, come unto me, all you that labor. Well, what does being saved look like? Do I sit here and call God into my heart? That's not what it looks like. I mean, that you, you, do, you, do, you do need to believe with your heart. But you have, the goal is to be filled with God. The goal is to turn to God, to, be, to, uh, to officialize you're dealing with God, with Christ. To be baptized for the remission of your sins, that's not just some kind of elective. He says, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Maybe you hear and there's some things about you you know you need to fix. We'll pray for you this morning. We'll pray with you, not just for you, because you're not the only one. Turn to somebody and tell them you're not the only one. You have some characteristics that have been hindering and messing up your relationships. And some of you have gotten so comfortable with them that you don't even try to change them anymore. And maybe this lesson you saw, there are some things about me that I need to change. Because the hardest person to change is you. Let's pray about it.